If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 579. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. My Handle, of course, for all those accounts is at Brian McClanahan, so you can find it that way. Or just go to that page, click on those social media accounts. Also, while you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, purchase a class or 20. You keep this podcast free of charge. All those classes, lifetime enrollment once you purchase that class. So you get it forever. You can download all the material, and you can listen to it in your car. You can watch it on your computer or your mobile device. I mean, it is a great win-win situation. You get great content, and you support the show. You keep it going. Also, you can support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can donate through that tab. You can also purchase my books. Right? If you want one of my books, go to wherever books are sold online. Get the Southern... Uh, get the Jeffersonian tradition, excuse me, get get uh, Southern Scribblings, get Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, get the Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, get any of my books who help support the show. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff, like a wall clock, right? A wall clock, coffee cups, skins for electronic devices, t-shirts, uh, you know, all kinds of cool things, wall plates. It's great stuff out there, and you can get it at that shop tab. Also, Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it a five-star review. Share it around on social media. Let people know you're thinking locally, acting locally. And if you want me to talk about something, send me those show requests. And this is an example that I can work out. I've received several emails about this, this topic, and people wanted me to cover it. It's the article that was at lourockwell.com. Um, and it was published on... Let me go up here because I have it. Scroll down. I have to scroll back down. It was published on December 31st. So right at the end of last year, and so it's been out there for about a month, and he just did a, a, uh, an interview with this, uh, Richard Poe, um, How the British Caused the American Civil War. Now, this is an interesting topic, right? He's taking essentially an economic determinist position that at the, at the highest level, the war was still a war of political economy. Slave labor was tied into the political economy because this is what, in his mind, kept cotton cheap enough to be sure that the British would get that cotton and, of course, um, use it to fuel their manufacturing base and then send those manufactured goods back to the United States. In some ways, this isn't new. and He's saying it's new. In some ways, this argument isn't new. Look, if you look at Donald Fehrenbacher, who wrote... Um, uh, was it Fehrenbacher or Freeling? I can't remember one of the two that wrote a little book on uh, nullification in South Carolina. 
They basically said, look, it's all about slavery because nullification, the idea of trying to protect against the high tariffs of the North, was essentially to ensure that they could still trade with the British. And at the heart of that was slave labor because the cotton uh, plantation system made uh, ensure that you had slave labor. You had to have that to keep the prices low enough. Now, there's a whole lot of complexity here wrapped into all this. And that's because, you know, was the South really making... What uh, was slave labor as cheap as these people say it was? Was it a, was an expensive system? This is where you get into was slavery essentially ultra capitalist or was it not? Uh, was it paternalist? Did Southerners uh, just kind of begrudgingly use the system? Now I would say personally that uh, there was a lot of money in slavery. I mean it was there, right? And it it wasn't capitalist. Um, it was it was paternalist, but people could make a lot of money on it. If you look at the sugar plantations, for example, in Louisiana, huge amounts of money. Uh, cotton was not necessarily as profitable, um, without question. As particularly because it wore out lands very quickly, you had to keep you had to keep finding new lands to open up. Just as tobacco wasn't necessarily as profitable, we know in Virginia tobacco farmers were struggling, right? So cotton was something else. The British also had other markets. To get their cotton from. They could get it from Africa. They could get it from India. There were other places to get cotton. And they were certainly exploring those markets. You also had a strong anti-slavery and abolitionist push in Great Britain. The queen herself, Queen Victoria, was anti-slavery. So was her husband, Prince Albert. He was anti-slavery. And uh, they certainly were not in favor of the South and its economic system in terms of its labor system, I should say. Though you did have some leaders in the British government at the time in the 1860s that certainly understood the importance, you know, Palmerston, for example, understood the importance of gunboat diplomacy and the expansion of the Navy and what markets could mean for an industrialized Britain and a growing and powerful economy in Britain, to create this world empire that's bigger than anything. So Poe's position that Britain caused the war is a macro look, right? Not micro. He's going macro. He's saying the macro situation is this. And he talks about in the piece, and I'll, and I'll, I'll talk about a couple parts of this. The macro situation was you had, uh, you had a, an industrializing north and he calls it the American system against the British system. You had an industrializing North that was building factories. And those factories, they were going to try to start targeting Southerners to try to persuade them, even through force, to trade their cotton with them. Because they were going to raise manufactured prices to a point, or they were going to raise tariffs to a point on woolen manufacturers and other things, to where the South was going to have to trade their cotton with the North. They were going to have to send it to Northern textile mills. Now, the hitch in that is that Southerners weren't necessarily adverse to doing it. They just didn't want the tariffs. They weren't adverse to sending their cotton to the northern textile mills if those textile mills would pay the same price that the British would. That was the point. Now, the South was certainly more interested in free trade, and in fact, their entire constitution is based on that. Plus, you have this very famous letter from Robert Rett, who wrote it, and sent out to the world explaining the cause of the South. And what you find in that letter is that there's very little written in it about slavery. 
It's about the economy of the South and what it means and what an independent confederacy could mean to Great Britain and France primarily. We will trade with you. Look, you're going to have this North that has all these high tariffs and all these problems. We won't have that. You come on in here, we're going to destroy the Northern economy. This is Phil Lee's essential position and what he says that this is what Lyon, Lyon Tyler has said and others. Look, the issue is not that the South is paying more in tariffs. That's a bad argument. The issue is that a free trade South would crush the North. This is what Lincoln said, what about my tariff? Because it's not that the South is going to pay more. The South was going to obliterate the Northern economy because nobody would trade with the North. The tariff wouldn't raise any revenue then because the South would be the gateway into, the, into North America. These Southern ports, Charleston, Savannah, Rich, uh, I'm sorry, Norfolk into Virginia. You would have these areas that would then become, or even into places like Pensacola. Uh, you would have the, uh, New Orleans. You would have these places that will become major trading hubs because this is where the British would send their products. They would skip the North. And of course, the South would then export their cotton and their other cash crops. It wasn't just cotton. It was indigo. It was rice. It was sugar. There were... They were making lots of money on all kinds of tobacco, lots of money on all kinds of cash crops. Hemp, wheat, fruits and vegetables. These were big things, right? So the South was, and what Poe describes it as, a colonial economy. The South was a colony of Great Britain. Now, Southerners did borrow money from the British. Heck, even the founding generation, they were borrowing money from the British. And he gets into that, the early history and how the British kept their economic tentacles in the South, he calls it manipulative. Maybe, uh, certainly Southerners with a plantation economic system, with an agricultural system, were interested in cash crops and what that could mean and how that could make them money. So his position is basically macro. It doesn't go down to the micro. Now, at the micro level, we can see there's all kinds of other things happening here, but the macro causes the micro. So this would say there's no constitutional crisis. That was made up. There's no real crisis over slavery. That was essentially made up. Or unless you say it was a byproduct of the fact that the South needed slavery to ensure that they would continue in this very profitable system. Now, one thing he does say that I think is wrong is that there was a rich and poor and there wasn't really anything in the middle. I would say that's actually incorrect. In fact, the work that's been done, even by people who aren't pro-Southern at all, has shown that these middling plantation owners and we were, were making pretty good money. Uh, you had a fair, you had a pretty sizable middle class in the South. You had people in terms of wealth that were equal to what people had in terms of wealth in the free states. So there wasn't really this economic inequality that people talk about. You did have the plantation system, but middling farmers were, were growing cotton. Even those with uh, you know, if maybe they had a couple of slaves. They were still growing cotton. Maybe they didn't have any slaves. They're still growing cotton. In fact, after the war is over, this ramps up even more substantially. Cotton production goes through the roof in the 1870s, which is why the price of cotton was so depressed. There was so much cotton on the market, right? And people were wearing out the soil. Most famous example of that is in Lumpkin, Georgia, where you had all these people growing cotton. And they destroyed the soil so much, you had massive amounts of runoff. And so these massive amounts of runoff, of course, are going to create this canyon. It's called Providence Canyon, this huge canyon in, uh, in Georgia. It's called the Little Grand Canyon. It's created by farming 
and people didn't know what they were doing when it came to preservation of the soil, soil erosion, and things like that. And you can see that in this area. There's other parts of it. We have these gullies that have been created by runoff, right? So this is something else, but regardless, okay? I'm going to read a couple of parts of this, and I think that there is, I mean, look, going from the macro, and you've had, you know, uh, Bensel's uh, Yankee Leviathan, uh, that's been on this, you know, Howard Jones, who wrote uh, several good books on uh, on Confederate diplomacy, actually taught at Alabama for years. Um, very, I mean, just straight pro-historian. Uh, he's not pro-South. He's not pro-North. He just tells the story. What Poe does is kind of create a straw man a little bit, saying, well, you know, people have overplayed British neutrality. Howard Jones never did. Howard Jones never overplayed it. And you had this other book that came out, uh, Our Man in Charleston in 2016, um, which was about uh, Robert Bunch, and he was a uh, an abolitionist who certainly wasn't in line with what uh, with what uh, Poe is saying here that you know these people really wanted the war. I mean, Bunch was completely against the South. You know, he's he's completely against it. There are other people uh, like Henry Pinckney Walk uh, Pinckney Walker who were certainly for it, right? So I think the evidence is there. There were Brits who wanted who wanted the British government to recognize the South. And there were leaders in the British cabinet that wanted the British government to recognize the South. Victoria herself, as Poe points out, essentially said, look, yeah, we're going to we're gonna, we're, we're gonna recognize Confederate belligerency, which was kind of a, not de jure, but sort of de facto recognition of the Confederacy. And it was only, Poe's point, is only Russian intervention that kept the British and the French from really recognizing the South. It wasn't really the Emancipation Proclamation. It was Russia getting involved. So, it's, again, it's a diplomatic history. It's an interesting argument, maybe overplayed a little bit, uh, but certainly that macro position is something that's, uh, that's interesting. So he says, um, how Britain caused the Civil War. He says, the preceding account has hopefully convinced at least a few readers to question whether Great Britain was really neutral in our civil war, as many historians claim. Well, again, uh, I think a lot of historians realize that the British weren't really that neutral. They weren't neutral at all. I mean, uh, by allowing Confederate raiders to be built, the CSS Alabama, for example, uh, by allowing the United uh, the Confederate States to use the British, I mean the Trent Affair. I mean these are all things that are important to understand. And you did have Confederate agents in London, right? The most famous example is Albert Taylor Bledsoe, who was sent or, or who was sent over there, and he was doing working for the Confederate government. This is where he, he accessed the archives and wrote. Uh, is Jefferson Davis, is Davis a traitor, right? This we, now, the other example is, of course, Duncan Kenner, who was sent over uh, there to try to persuade the British that if they would recognize the Confederacy, the South would abolish slavery. Because, you see, that points more to, well, uh, it wasn't because of the Tsar sending his fleet, it's because Lincoln's move and the Emancipation Proclamation did more to turn the popular tide against the Confederacy than anything else, because that would say, well, ending slavery is going to be a war aim. Before that point, it wasn't a war aim. So the British were just, well, if they keep the war succeeds, we're going to have slavery. If the war doesn't succeed, we're going to have slavery. So what's the point? If the Confederacy is independent, we're going to have it. If it's not independent, we're going to have it. So what's the point? So 
uh, I, because there was a pretty strong abolitionist sentiment in the Brit in, in the British Empire. I think that's something that's there. But then he says, he, let me let me let me get into more of this. He says Britain, Britain's meddling seems to stretch the definition of neutrality beyond the breaking point, and there is more. Some evidence suggests that England may have actually caused the Civil War. Some evidence. Again, it's it's a little bit of a stretch. Lincoln's top economic advisor, Henry Charles Carey, believed this. He accused Britain of instigating the war for her own profit. In his 1867 pamphlet, Reconstruction, Industrial, Financial, and Political, Carey charged Britain with inflaming secessionist passions through a network of British agents working in close alliance with the slaveholding aristocracy of the South. Now, of course... The Man in Charleston, that book written in 2016 about uh, Robert Bunch, would blow that theory apart because Bunch didn't want, didn't want the British to recognize the South because of slavery. Now, some did. The Southern economy depended on Britain, which purchased 70% of Southern cotton exports each year. According to Kerry, Britain used this influence to push Southern leaders towards secession. The British knew that an independent South would be free to cut tariffs and use slave labor, keeping cotton prices low. Well, they did. They, they, were, they had in their constitution where protective tariffs were illegal. And they did set up a free trade situation that would have been beneficial to the British, ultimately. Unless the underlying problem of British influence was addressed, Kerry predicted that Union efforts to reconstruct the South would fail. Quote, British free trade, industrial monopoly, and human slavery travel together, Kerry concluded. And the man who undertakes the work of reconstruction without having first satisfied himself that such is certainty, certainly the fact, will find that he has been building on shifting sands and must fail to produce an edifice that will be permanent. Kerry believed that two rival economic systems were competing for dominance in the 19th century, the British system and the American system. He argued that our civil war was fought very largely to determine which of these two systems would prevail. The British system sought to make England the workshop of the world with a global monopoly on industrial production. Other countries were to provide food and raw materials in exchange for British manufacturers. By contrast, the American system encouraged national self-sufficiency. Americans were urged to produce everything they needed in their own country, including food, raw materials, and manufacturers. The two systems were incompatible and bound to collide. America was the natural arena for this contest, inasmuch as the industrialized North followed the American system, while the agricultural South followed the British system. So, this is the economic argument. So in this case, I mean, look, he's basically, he's taking slavery sort of out of it, but keeping it in it because it was part and parcel of the Southern plantation economy. So Southerners were willing to keep slavery and, and essentially uh, make that an important part of their push because it ensured that their economic system would be viable. This essentially is, is part of the argument. He continues, why England supported the Confederacy? The British had much to lose if the North prevailed. The North was building its own textile mills and trying to replace England as the South's leading trade partner. If that happened, the British system could potentially collapse. Britain would lose her supply of cheap cotton. She would lose her global textile monopoly. And she would lose the American South as a market for English manufacturers. Southerners would henceforth, henceforth buy manufactured goods from the North. On March 7, 1862, Lord Robert Cecil addressed the British Parliament in these words, quote, the northern states of America can never be sure our sure friends because we are rivals, rivals politically, rivals commercially. We aspire to the same position. We both aspire to the government of the seas. 
We are both manufacturing people, and at every port, as well as at every court, we are rivals to each other. With respect to the southern states, the case is entirely reversed. The population are the agricultural people. They furnish the raw material of our industry, and they consume the products which you manufacture from it. With them, therefore, every interest must lead us to cultivate friendly relations. And we have seen that when the war began, they at once recurred to England as their natural ally. That is all 100% true. I don't think there's any, any uh, dispute about that. Again, the, the title of this, How the British Caused the American Civil War, is sensational. But it's an old economic determinist argument. With these words, Lord Cecil made clear that the relationship Britain desired with America was a colonial relationship in which the colonies would export food and raw materials to the mother country while the mother country supplied manufactured goods in return. Again, um, I think calling it colonial is a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, if you look at it in the broad history of the world, you know, colonies generally provided raw materials for the parent country. Uh, though the South would not have been a, I, again, I think it's a, a little bit of a stretch to call it a colony of England, though a primary trade partner might be the, might be the accurate way to describe it. Britain favored the South precisely because Southerners had never broken the colonial bond. The South remained economically dependent on the mother country. The North, on the other hand, had sought to better its lot by industrializing and building its own merchant fleet thus competing with Britain. In doing so, the North became England's rival and ultimately her deadly enemy. Now, the only reason the North went in this direction is because that's what they had to do. They had the commercial interests of England. You have to remember, Daniel Webster, elected from New Hampshire originally and then later Massachusetts, but Daniel Webster, in 1812, opposed the War of 1812 because it was it was hurting, it, it was anti-free trade. It was Southerners like Jefferson and Madison who first thought, well, you know what we need to do? We need to have an American system. In fact, this is why Henry Clay, who's a Southerner, by the way, Henry Clay was a Jeffersonian. And he looked at it and said, yeah, the American system's great. This isn't a bad thing. We can, we can be self-sufficient. This is Drew McCoy's The Elusive Republic. It kind of gets into this. How economically, you know, or, or even, even Michael Holt's History of the Whig Party, which is a massive, like, you know, feels like it's about 20 million uh, pages. Uh, but he gets into the fact that Henry Clay was, in fact, an old Jeffersonian, just a national Jeffersonian. He had some Jeffersonian tendencies, but he certainly was uh, a, a Jeffersonian. Uh, and, of course, he liked parts of the Hamiltonian system. Jefferson didn't necessarily deny it, that, that he, I mean, he supported the embargo. And the quids raised Cain over this. Free trade versus protection. Many historians hold that the British system encouraged free trade while the American system promoted protectionism. However, this is misleading. Actually, both systems were protectionist. The confusion arises from British propagandists who learned early to camouflage your protectionist policies beneath the rhetoric of free trade. In his 1776 book, Wealth of Nations, British economist Adam Smith held that all countries should trade freely with each other without tariffs or other restrictions. The invisible hand of the markets would ensure that each country received the goods it needed at the best price. Smith's idea may or not have been practical, but it was never actually tried. Instead, Britain applied free trade selectively, only in those markets where she had a, held a secure monopoly or some other advantage. Britain's 1810 trade agreement with Brazil illustrates the point. Uh, in 1807, the British Navy rescued the 
Braganzas, Portugal's royal family, by transporting them to the Portuguese colony of Brazil, out of reach of Napoleon's invading troops. In return for this favor, the Braganzans agreed to open Brazilian ports to free trade. It was a trick. British dominance of the seas guaranteed that Brazil's newly opened ports would mainly benefit Britain. The English seas aligned shares Brazil's overseas trade. Excuse me. Some royal councillors warned the Braganzans against further concessions, but a liberal faction within the bureaucracy opposed them. Rodrigo de Sousa uh, Cuntijo and Jose de Silvia Lisboa had studied Adam Smith's Wells of Nations and urged the Braganzas to trust the invisible hand of the free market. By 1810, the British were sufficiently entrenched in Rio de Janeiro to force Brazil into signing a treaty granting special privileges to Britain, including a preferential tariff which taxed British goods at only 15% compared with 24% for other nations. Even the mother country, Portugal, was taxed at 16%. Thus, under the guise of free trade, Britain effectively replaced Portugal as Brazil's mother country, reducing Brazil to a client state. And, and look... The British were doing this all the time. They did it in the 20th century with, say, uh, Iran, right? I mean, this is where you get to 1953, and Day seizes British petroleum in Iran, and the British cry foul, go to the United States, and this leads to the coup and the installation of the Shah. So he continues with a whole lot of things, and uh, he moves down and explains uh, how the British system was not really free trade. Um, he says that in his writings, Henry Carey habitually enclosed the term free trade in quotation marks to remind readers that free trade was simply a rebranding of British, Britain's traditional colonial policy. With self-proclaimed disciples of Adam Smith, were, uh, while self-proclaimed disciples of Adam Smith were evangelizing the world through such groups as the British Free Trade League, Britain herself continued ruling her markets through brute force. Example, Carey cited the Opium Wars in which Britain used military force to compel China to buy opium from government-licensed producers in British India. Kerry noted that military action, orchestrated financial crisis, prohibitory duties, and dumping campaigns were just a few of the state-directed and state-subsidized interventions which Britain's merchant princes routinely used to protect their monopolies, all while pushing free trade on their intended victims. A member of Parliament, Mr. Robertson, highly con largely confirmed Kerry's views when he told the House of Commons in October of 1831, quote, It was idle for us to endeavor to persuade other nations to join with us in adopting the principles of what was called free trade. Other nations knew, as well as the noble lord opposite and those who acted with him, what was meant by free trade was nothing more nor less than by means of the great advantages we enjoyed to get a monopoly of all their markets for our manufacturers and to prevent them, one and all, from ever becoming manufacturing nations. So again, the, the uh, macro position here. And he continues with a lot of this. Uh, and again, I, I don't want to I don't want to go on for you know 50 minutes on this piece. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's saying this was an economic war. The war was caused by economics. It wasn't a war over slavery, though slavery was a part of it because slavery was important in the labor situation of the South. It was a war that the British brought on because they made the South a colonial dependency. That the South had not been a colonial dependency, maybe it, it industrializes, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it abandons slavery, maybe it does other things. I don't know about that. That's the part where I think there's a little bit of a stretch here. Uh, you know, slavery was certainly profitable because of cotton, but also because of sugar. We're not talking about sugar here. 
which of course he's saying cotton is the big thing. What about sugar? Uh, you had a lot of people that realized by the 1850s that sugar was where it was at when you wanted to make money. You look at the big plantations. For example, the largest current uh, plantation home, antebellum home, in the United States is in Louisiana. It's called Nottaway. It was built by sugar money and people that abandoned cotton production essentially to come make money on sugar. And it was built in the 1850s. It wasn't built in the 1830s or 40s. It was built in the 1850s just, just before the war began. So people realized that sugar was where it was at when it came to the new cash crop. In fact, I think you probably would have seen cotton wane a little bit. And of course, the South then hoards all their cotton during the war, and it doesn't work out for them. They have warehouses full of the stuff. They can't move because of the blockade. The British refused to break the blockade. Uh, and so the cotton didn't really work to their advantage. They thought by hoarding cotton, the British would certainly want to break the blockade, but they had other markets. And so maybe it wasn't to their advantage. Uh, this is where you get into a whole bunch of complexity of things. But I do like this piece and that it's, it's something uh, that is putting the focus back on economics. It's putting the focus back on the macro, the big picture, rather than just these, well, it's all about slavery. It's about because you had these moral northerners against these immoral southerners and they were just going to fight over is slavery good or bad. I mean, that's just stupid and simplistic. Certainly southerners... Uh, many Southerners thought slavery was a progressive institution, and certainly there were some Northerners that were against the institution. Right? Most Americans were indifferent. Eh, it exists. It's not really that great, or it's not, or it is okay, whatever it is. But we're just not even worried about it. But when you start looking at economics and put hurting people and putting you know, money, right? It's it's the thing that goes in your wallet. When you start talking about that, that becomes something entirely different. And uh, this is why economic determinism is a is a much more accurate situation. Of course, it's also why you know Southerners did put out not only their constitution, but again, I mentioned this thing by Rhett, where he says, "Look, we're open for business now. You can come in here, and we're going to trade." And Southerners continued to run the blockade and do other things. This is this is important. All of that economic stuff is important, and to say otherwise is to miss the boat, because essentially what you're doing is buying into the to the woke left and the Straussians, the neocons about this. So the Poe piece is interesting. I wanted to cover it. Lots of people asked about it. There you go. There's my opinion on it. See you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>